This is Chapter 63 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we share some never-before-heard stories about former First Lady Nancy Reagan as told by one of her longtime friends. We honor some modern women who refuse to act as was expected of them. And finally, we welcome back summer beach reads. Intense scrutiny of the First Lady isn't just limited to the current administration. For those of us old enough to remember, during the 1980s, Nancy Reagan was accused of being power-hungry and even once called the Dragon Lady. A much softer image of her emerges in the new book Lady in Red, an intimate portrait of Nancy Reagan, written by her longtime confidant and personal press secretary, Sheila Tate. Sheila shared her memories with us and our Pat Farnack. What would people be surprised to find out about Nancy Reagan, you worked for her and you knew her so well. You know, there's so many things about Nancy Reagan that most people don't know about. I think the most interesting for me um, would be what a nice sense of humor she had. I don't think a lot of people were aware of that. She also, everybody I talked to voluntarily would say something along the lines of, you know, Nancy Reagan knew how to keep a secret. And basically... If you told her something in confidence, you are guaranteed it never went any further. I mean, she she was that type of person. There was a lot about her to admire. I always have felt, as her press secretary, a little bit guilty that I never could seem to get enough of a real human profile on her um, out in front of the public. So this is my way of really giving people a better sense of what kind of a human being Nancy Reagan is. Do you think she maybe wanted it that way, that she wanted to reveal as much as she wanted to reveal, and that was it? And also, those were different times, too. We didn't have social media and all of that during those times. No, but we had gossip columns in every paper. Mm -hmm. There were other ways of getting um, silly things out. But um, I don't think so. I think she was just kind of reserved and and wary. She was always a little wary of the press. She'd been burned um, by press when her husband was governor. And and um, I think I helped get her a, a lot more comfortable. And she certainly had certain members of the press that she would open up to. But um, I just, I think, you know, by the time that the second term was over, I still hadn't done my job. (laughs) Uh, Well, this this is uh, setting things right then. Lady in Red is setting things right. Nancy Reagan had had a very regal air about her in public, don't you think? And yet um, you describe her at one point as as chatty. And uh, Ronald Reagan turning his hearing aid off. She was too chatty. And tell me about that. Well, that was a story told to me by one of the guys who has worked on the Reagan Ranch forever, Dennis LeBlanc. And Dennis said that Nancy had, they always, Dennis and uh, another um, man who worked up there named Barney, and the Reagans always had meals together when they were at the ranch. And and Dennis said that Nancy tended to want to talk all the way through dinner. <laughs> and and he had a prearranged deal with the president that when that the when the president would quietly turn off his hearing aid, um he would nudge Dennis with his foot. And if Nancy directed a question or a comment directly to President Reagan, Dennis would nudge him back. And that would give him a quick signal to turn on his hearing aid. 
and he would always say, darn it, Nancy, there's something wrong with my hearing aid. What would you repeat that? <laughs> <laughs> and they, they had these, you know, guy things going all the time up there. That's funny. Uh, now, she was uh, also a big protector in chief, as they say. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, there was an interesting story about her saying no to JFK Jr. when he mm-hmm. wanted to do an article on Alzheimer's and mm-hmm. uh, Ronald Reagan uh, for mm-hmm. George magazine when that was big. Mm-hmm. Well, it was actually for the I think it was going to be for the first issue It was oh. going to be, you know, a real showstopper. And, mm-hmm. and she called me one day and she seldom was insecure about what she wanted to do in in cases like this. But she called me and she said, I am so fond of John Kennedy Jr. She said he's called and he's asked me if I would allow him to send a famous photographer out to photograph um, Ronnie, as she called him, um, as the face of Alzheimer's and um, to do a, a really big story on Alzheimer's. And she said, I just don't know what to do. I'm really torn because I I feel like it would be important to help educate people about Alzheimer's. But on the other hand, I just don't know. And and I, I mean, I was sitting there listening to her, and she said, what, what should I do? And I said, what would you do if the situation were reversed and you were the one that had Alzheimer's? What would you want him to do? And she paused for maybe five seconds, and she went, you're right. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to have to tell him no. Mm. And and it was the only time I, I'd ever seen her kind of falter on this protectionist side. You know, she mm. wasn't sure. That was a and good I suggestion. Was, that was a good suggestion to give her. Turn well, the tables. You, it just came from my heart. I didn't, you know, I wasn't prepared for it. I just, it just came out. And it came from a, a, a mutual respect that I think we had over the years particularly after I left the White House. And, and uh, I, I, uh, the day I left, she said, from now on, I want you to call me Nancy. And I'd always, always called her Mrs. Reagan. Mm. And, um, and that began what was essentially a change in our relationship over the years. And she would call me. My, I, I lost my husband in 1998, suddenly to heart attack. And she... Her, her father, who, who, as you know, is a doctor, had told her that grieving people need to, to cry and that you should encourage your friends to cry. Well, she, she would call me once a week I could, without fail. It was almost every single Monday. She would call, call me at my office. I would have to close my door, and we would sit and talk transcontinental, transcontinentally, and she would make me cry. Uh-huh. I mean, essentially that was, she, she knew she had to do that. And I used to tell her, I said, you know, Jody Powell, who was my business partner at the time, we would go out to lunch and he would gingerly say something about, how are you doing? And I'd start crying. <laughs> and she, He'd go, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And she said, that's what, that's what people do. They just don't want, they're, they're, they don't want to, they're embarrassed, you know, yeah. when you cry. And so they back off and they just don't say anything. And that's true. Uh, so she gave, she she was a huge friend to me during that period. She primed the pump for you to to grieve. It sounds yeah, exactly. like uh, you <laughs> yeah. know what was real. I've often thought about this: the the long goodbye. Um, uh, didn't uh, it wasn't President Reagan 
15 years after leaving office, he was yeah, still alive yeah. and, and, and uh, uh, still going with Alzheimer's. And um, you mentioned how it shrunk Mrs. Reagan's world, but she was still the protector in chief at that point, wasn't she? And she was still there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she she would, in fact, she encouraged his uh, going to the office every day for as long as possible, because everything she learned was that an Alzheimer's um, patient really benefited from that kind of stimulation. Mm-hmm. And so she arranged for that. I mean, she and she she never left home for more than to run up the street to have lunch with a friend. I mean, she she just you know she wanted to be with him. So and she, she I mean she showed me for instance his handwritten notes for what he wanted for his funeral, and every single item on that list was included in his service. I mean she was she was also a perfectionist by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I see here Nancy Reagan danced with a lesbian. This is a story told to me by uh, Doug Wick. And he was the son of Charlie and Mary Jane Wick, who were close friends of the Reagans. And in fact, Charlie was head of USIA in Washington. Doug married a woman that he first introduced to Nancy at a party. And Nancy took her into the kitchen and grilled her for 15 or 20 minutes and came out and said to him, don't mess this one up. This is, mm-hmm. the, this is, the, this is the one for you. And uh, he said, we got married. He said, Nancy was at the wedding. And he said, at one point, he said, the room was filled with liberal Democrats. At one point, a very well-known lesbian writer came over to Nancy's table and looked at her and said, um, would you like to dance? Would you dance with me? And Nancy said, you lead. Now, who'd have thunk that? Now, she, I was always impressed by how impeccably dressed she was. I mean, there was never a hair out of place. And right. did, did she wear, were those St. John's suits? I don't remember. Do you remember um, the, those knit suits she used to wear? Yeah, no, she, she had some St. John's. She wore a lot of Galanost uh, mm. clothing. As I said, I was the off-the-rack press secretary, so I, I had to learn a lot in a quick in quick order. But I mean, she she also never threw anything out because she always wore classic clothes, and they they stood the test of time. So she had a closet filled with uh, you know clothes twenty thirty years old. And and uh, the president used to complain about it that she never threw anything out. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? She looks like she was always a size four. I mean, her it didn't look like her weight fluctuated at all. Well, here's a story about that. One day we were sitting on the plane, and she saw that I was watching her eat, and she said, "What are you? Why are you watching me?" And I said, "Because there's a rumor going around in the press corps that you." Um, chew your food 32 times before you swallow it, and that that's how you stay so thin. And she started to laugh, and I said, she said, it's not true. I said, I know, I've been counting. (laughs) She said, said, I can't believe it, that's going around. And I said, yes, it is. And I said, I was kind of hoping it was true because I was going to take, I was going to start trying it for myself. (laughs) Wow, wow. There was also, you know, talk about impeccably dressed. One day she was sitting up in the in the private residence, and she was just having this m- informal meeting with a woman who was, um, I think it, it, she was tied to the National Trust for Historic Preservation. It was something like that. And 
she never met Nancy before. Nancy never didn't know her before, and they were just sitting talking and had tea or something. And <clears throat> they got up to separate, and and Nancy's skirt fell off. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, I said, "What your skirt fell off?" She said, "It was a wraparound skirt, and it came untied, and it just when I stood up, it fell down." And she said, "Thank God, I had a slip off." <laughs> <laughs> and she said, I said, what did you do? And she said, I looked at her and I said, well, I guess this is one meeting you'll never forget. That's <laughs> and wild. And she said the woman was, you know, didn't know what to do. And she says they finally just broke out laughing. And she said it will, <laughs> she will remember it. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Well, those are the, uh, many great stories. Um, anything you would like to uh, conclude with or go into? Only, Only to say that if we had enough time, we would talk about all the work she did for young people in drug abuse and, yes. and the lives she saved, including, which I think it's really important to, to know that she brought children back from overseas who were, were condemned to, to die from without open-heart surgery. She brought two Korean kids back. And I have touched base with, with one of them, and um, it's in the book, but it's a wonderful story. There's also a wonderful story about this little girl who was 10 days away from uh, dying because she needed a, a liver. And Nancy Reagan and the, the famous surgeon um, Tom Starzl um, got together, and Nancy got the press corps to put out a huge story, and a liver was found. And that, I talked to that girl. She's 39 years old, and she has three children, lives wow. in Indiana. Wow. And there, there are just a million things like that that people, if they knew it, and also the last chapter of the book's about her death. But it's not sad because it involves a dog named Digby. And to me, it's one of the best chapters in the book. You can't leave me hanging. <laughs> well, the, what happened was this, this friend of ours, Robert Higdon, had a little tiny little dog. I mean, he weighed ounces. And he was over visiting her probably three or four days before she died. And, she, you know, she had heart failure, so she was kind of going in and out. Yeah. And he said they'd talk for a while, and then she'd seem to fall asleep. And he said Digby, his little teeny dog, adored her, and he would sit up on her, on her lap, on her stomach. And he said at one point Nancy looked really sound asleep, and he said Digby turned and started walking south on Nancy. All of a sudden, clear as, out of the clear blue sky, clear voices, as you can imagine, Nancy says, that better be Digby. <laughs> and that was just a few days before she died. I mean, you know, I, I love thinking I love of that. her in that kind of frame of mind, you know, as she was getting ready to leave us. Oh, that's a great story. I'm going to hazard to guess that at some point in her life, Nancy Reagan was labeled as difficult. Odds are, if you're a woman, you've been there too. I'll give you a second to think about it. Difficult is meant to be disparaging, to keep us in line with cultural and societal norms. But throughout history, there have been women who've stood up and embraced that part of their personalities. Two dozen of them are featured in the new book, In Praise of Difficult Women, Life Lessons from 29 Heroines Who Dared to Break the Rules. I spoke with author Karen Carbo. Your book features 29 difficult women encompassing all walks of life. We're talking authors, musicians, actresses, politicians, athletes, both past and present. How did you manage to narrow things down to this select group? 
well, it's a great question and one that is, you know, I could talk about for probably a half an hour, but I'll try it. I'll try and make it short. You know, this is, um, I mean, as you know, it takes years and years to write a book. So um, this was a, it was sort of an ongoing process. You know, the basic thing um, that I kept coming back to is these women had to really inspire me. Um, they had to, I, I was, um, you know, fascinated by their lives, fascinated by their effect on our culture, um, but mostly fascinated uh, about sort of the choices they made based on who they were. So um, there are a lot of women who are difficult, thank goodness, um, and, and, you know, plenty for a volume two and a volume three, but these were the ones that felt the most alive and uh, you know, sort of interesting to me. The other thing I really hoped to do was was create a diverse portrait, um, not just, you know, American women. There's European women. There's, um, you know, Ava Perone is in the book. Um, so, and also women of so, different um, socioeconomic places and race and sexual orientation and, and so on. So, you know, I was, I was looking at a couple different things as I, as I kept... Um, narrowing it down, but this is very much a select, uh, a, um, subjective, uh, cho- you know, choice. And everybody else would have their own list of difficult women. Was the was there one woman in particular who was the first one to pop into your mind, and you're like, yes, she has to be in the book? Well, you know, I I've been. Um, it's interesting that this book sort of came to fruition. Um, this is I've been a mad consumer of. Um, the biographies of women for my whole life since I was a little girl. And Jane Goodall is the first woman um, who I I was just blown away by her life. My parents had a subscription to National Geographic. And before I could even read, I would page through, um, and there would be all those amazing pictures of her with the chimps in Africa. And so, you know, there was no doubt in my mind that that Dr. Goodall would, would um, be one of the foundational women, for sure. I have a bumper sticker on my fridge that reads, women who behave rarely make history. And you seem to embrace that idea in this book with the women you've selected, haven't you? You know, we say difficult, but really, these women, I'm, I'm, I mean, maybe some thought they were difficult, but really that's a label that that... The outside world, I don't want to just say men, because, of course, there are women who call other women difficult as well. But really, these are women who um, fully embraced who they were. And if that upset people, um, because guess what? When we do embrace who we fully are, which means my passions and goals and the things I want for myself are at least as important as those of everyone around me, which is my one of my definitions of what a difficult woman is. When that's true and you bump up against someone and you inconvenience them, if they're of a mind, they will call you difficult. So, you know, really who these people are are, are full human beings that didn't allow the culture to dictate who they should be. And it, it, the time is especially right for a book with this, with women speaking out and women really coming into their own and, and you know, not being held back by the labels that are put on them. I would like to think so. <laughs> um, yes. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, and, and one of the things, the hopes that I have for the book is that, um, you know, we have our hashtag Time's Up. 
Um, and we have people like, you know, Oprah giving amazing speeches on award shows that are seen by millions of people. But the reality of life, of course, is that every day we have to get up and floss our teeth and put on our shoes and walk out into the world and, and you know, negotiate our lives. And I think the way we learn how to do that is by hearing stories of other women who have done that, or in this case, reading stories of other women who have, who have done that. And um, so that's what I'm hoping is that um, all of these women, 29 women, are quote-unquote difficult in difficult ways. You know, they're determined, they're ambitious, they're brainy. Um, and I'm hoping that readers will read through this and think, oh, you know, she was kind of, she seemed sort of shy to the world, but when she just went about her business, I, I can do that. I can be difficult in that way because that personality seems sort of, that speaks to me. So, um, you know, that's what I'm hoping is it really gives us a way forward in terms of how, how is time up? I mean, how do we, because we are who we are and we still have to be in our lives. And you've touched on it a little bit uh, in talking about what you define as difficult. It doesn't mean being, or it doesn't just mean being a person who is satisfied with the lot that they've been given in life. Correct. And I think most of, I mean, I'm trying, I'm looking right now, I'm looking through the table of contents. I'm trying to, I don't think any of them are. Um, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, that, that many of them, in fact, came from places where in order just for them to sort of survive, they would have to, uh, you know, being difficult, um, it wasn't a luxury item. It was something that they had to do, you know, in order in order to, to sort of survive. So, um, yeah, it's interesting in that in that regard, for sure. So do you consider yourself a difficult woman? I don't. <laughs> Although, you know, if you if you ask my husband, I'm sure he would he would um, tell you something else. But, you know, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, people think uh, often I think that right, they think writers are writing something because they're that's who they you know that you know I am communicating to you because I am a difficult woman but really uh, you know part of why I wrote the book I think is to figure out how to become more difficult myself I tend I think I'm, I think I'm an accommodating woman um, I'm much more difficult on the page than I am in real life although although since I've written this book I, I I am more more quote unquote difficult. And really, you know, I think all it all it takes for any of us to be more difficult is just to sort of step into that side of our nature that tends to rankle other people. I don't think we have to sort of do anything different. I think we just have to have the courage to um, you know, stand up for ourselves, to not care too much what people think. Um you know, one of the things that I, I actually really, like, love about men um, is that they tend not to get too upset when other people are upset, you know? I mean, I see it with my husband and his friends. Like, they'll have a little dust up and, and he'll say, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll check back in with him when things have cooled down a bit. Women, I think we tend to get more upset when someone's upset with us. We, like, try and figure out, like, what can we do? Um, and I think maybe if we do that a little less, that, that would be great. I could have used this advice yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> well, guess what? I'm sure, I mean, you know, it will come up again. And I just want to say one of the things that you do write in the book is that being difficult and tapping into that side that rankles people doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a B-I-T-C-H. 
No, and in fact, you know, I think it's interesting. I think, again, you know, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but I feel like we tend to behave that way when we're forced to sort of twist our personality into into a way we know that's not true to ourselves. You know, I think that the, kind of some of the, the, the you know, more unpleasant behavior uh you know, is actually a result of of us being untrue to ourselves and sort of, you know, acting out. So, um, yeah, it doesn't mean being unpleasant in that regard. So I know you mentioned you could have filled three books with difficult women. Are there any plans to to follow up with a, a second volume? Well, you know, I... I mean, I, this is something that's consumed me my whole life, so I always have, I mean, I'm working on a different kind of book at the moment, I'm working on a novel, but, um, you know, I'm always keeping notes, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I certainly have more to say about the topic, and it's been interesting as I've, I've been out on my book tour, people will say, well, what about Yoko Ono? It's like, oh my gosh, what about Yoko Ono? You know, she totally should have been in here, and, and now I think about young women like Emma Gonzalez, I would totally put her in a book about difficult women. So yeah, you know, I mean, it's an ongoing project for sure. And it's really started a discussion, it sounds like, with women reading it and thinking, wait, there's so many great women out there. And why aren't I more like these women? Hasn't it? Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, you know, when I've gone to events, and I love nothing more than having, you know, mothers and daughters come up, and both of them from, from their different vantage points are inspired. But particularly when young women, I had a young woman recently come up and she was getting ready to apply to, a, to, to MBA programs and she was feeling very sort of shaky about it. And she said, you know, but I read this book and, you know, it just, I, it made me realize I could do it. And, and that, that kind of feedback is, you know, what authors live for. But, um, but yeah, you know, and I think, as I said, Stories of other women doing it are much more, I think, um, I hate the word empowering, but I'm going to use it, are much, is much more empowering than kind of, I mean, it's great to have a call to action, you know, and it's great to live in a time when there's a little more room for this, but we just, how do you do it? Like, how do you do it moment to moment? Because that's what it's, where it's all negotiated, right, is, is how we behave with other people, how we say, no, I'm, I'm making time for this for myself, um, no, this is my opinion, and I am not backing off of it so that so that we all feel better about this meeting because that's that's the other thing. And I've had this experience where I've had an opinion, and people expected me to have an opinion. I mean, it is 2018, but when it it was time for there to be consensus, it was expected that me, as the woman in the room, would come off of my opinion and say, "Oh, fair enough. I see your point." And if I wasn't going to do that, then I would be called difficult. I think a lot of women out there can relate with that experience, that sentiment. Right? And I mean, it's very kind of subtle. So that, that's where I, where I say, you know, these stories help us understand how we sort of move through our days and how we can, we can just embody that. I think it helps us feel better about ourselves. And by the way, this isn't about, you know, burning down the administration building. This is really about how do we do it, you know, um, as, as we move through our lives. Well, we've had tons of books that, you know, talk about all the men in history with concrete examples. Now we finally have one of women. It's called In Praise of Difficult Women, Life Lessons from 29 Heroines Who Dared to Break the Rules. Karen Carbo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. 
The unofficial start to summer is just days away, and you know what that means. It's time for our summer beach reads. It's something of a yearly tradition around here and one of our faves. So between now and Labor Day, we'll highlight a book a week perfect for those lazy summer days. We kick things off with Alter Ego, a thriller set in Minnesota in January. Really, what better way is there to cool off? I spoke with author Brian Freeman. This is a ripped-from-the-headlines thriller. Why don't you tell readers a little bit of what they can expect without giving too much away? Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, the, the fun thing about Alter Ego is that I've been working on this plot line for several years, and uh, I had the idea of my Duluth Police Lieutenant Jonathan Stride dealing with a film being made on location in Duluth based on one of his earlier cases. And so Stride has to confront his alter ego, this Hollywood icon who is playing him in the movie. And uh, this uh, this celebrity seems to have some dark secrets that he doesn't want exposed. Uh, and of course, I, I wrote this book last year. I've been planning it for years. I turned it in early in September. And uh, I think just about two weeks after I turned in the manuscript, the whole Harvey Weinstein thing broke open in the press. So I, I had my editor calling saying, hey, did you know something? <laughs> so it's just one of those you can't make it up kind of coincidences. It, it totally is. It totally is. It, it now reads as if it was sort of the, the, the first thriller of the Me Too generation. And yet it was purely coincidence. And so that being said, what gave you the idea all those years ago to write a book that had this uh, percolating in the plot? Well, I, uh, I I have another hero based down in Florida by the name of Cab Bolton, who has some Hollywood connections through his mother. And uh, I had always thought that I'd like to do something that uh, that, that dealt with some of those connections. Uh, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought that the whole idea of the, the film being made would work better for uh, uh, for the January bitter cold of, of Duluth and uh, my Jonathan Stride hero. But uh, I, I also decided, well, this would be kind of a way of, of merging the, the two series and doing a bit of a crosser crossover book. So I, I give uh, Cab a little screen time in, uh, in, in this book as well. And uh, so it, it started actually with, with one of my other heroes and then made its way into Duluth. So for fans of yours, this was really a, a great moment for them because you brought these two together and they finally got to cross paths. Yeah, I had uh, I had fun with uh, with the the line Jonathan Stride meet Cab Bolton. I got a little chill as I was writing that. <laughs> <laughs> and you also mentioned that this takes place in January in Duluth. And for people not familiar with Minnesota winters, this is not something that sounds very fun. No, no, I feel a little guilty because uh, we we had another of those interminable winters here in Minnesota, and uh, and you know here we finally get out of it and get into spring, and I and I go and drop people right back in in January weather, but uh, but I do have a few scenes set down in the, in Cab Bolton country in the in the hot sunshine and beaches of Naples, Florida, so I give them a little break along the way. One reviewer has uh, has said about you that you write weather like nobody else. Has that been an intention, or it's just kind of evolved into that? No, it really has been my attention all along. I, I, I want to give readers a, a you are there feel. I want them to feel as if they've been dropped down into the middle of every scene and they can hear it and taste it and touch it and feel it happening all around them. And, uh, and, and weather is certainly a big part of that. I mean, one of the things I do is I, I scout locations and real places to include in the book, sort of the way a film director would. Uh, and the other side of that is, is what does it feel like to be there? And, and a big part of that is, is, is what the weather is like. So, and, and certainly in my Minnesota books, weather is just sort of a, a big part of the day-to-day -day life of, of Minnesotans. And so that's got to kind of make its way into the novels. Do you make sure that those research trips to warm weather places happen in uh, Minnesota winter? 
Uh, I wish that were true, but uh, I, I, I can remember a few years ago, I, I had the brilliant idea. I said to my wife, well, you know, I think we, we ought to go up and, and find a little cottage out on Park Point in Duluth and, and spend all of January there so that I could really get the feel of a Duluth winter. She didn't really react to that suggestion with quite the enthusiasm I was hoping for. Oh, I'm sure she didn't. <laughs> <laughs> we took a Florida research trip and managed to do that in July when it was 100 degrees and 100% humidity. So, For people who may not have ever picked up one of your books, can they just jump right in with Alter Ego or do you suggest they might start somewhere else? No, actually, I, I write the series very carefully so that readers can dive in anywhere. So I've, I've found uh, a lot of new readers with each new Jonathan Stride novel and uh, Alter Ego uh, is a great place to get to know him and the characters and uh, and enjoy the plot. And, and hopefully once you read Alter Ego, you'll uh, you'll want to go back and read some of the earlier novels as well. But uh, yeah, don't hesitate to dive in. It, it's not going to give anything away from the earlier books. And you don't need to have read the earlier books to uh, to read this one. So what are you working on next? Uh, I have another series set out in San Francisco uh, featuring a, a hero named Frost Easton. And uh, I've got two books out in that series, The Nightbird and The Voice Inside. And I just wrapped the third book in that series called The Crooked Street. And that will be out next January. Great. And just another question, talking about all these characters you write about. Do you ever get them mixed up and their backstories mixed up? You know, I, I, I there, there's such... They're such real people to me that, uh, that, that that I don't really. I mean, sometimes people will ask, do I keep kind of an encyclopedia of facts about each of the characters? And, and I don't know, maybe I should, but I deliberately don't do that because I don't want to reduce the characters to just sort of uh, facts on a page. I want them to really come to life uh, as I'm writing them, and I want them to sort of guide me through the process. So I think of them as as, as each individuals and, and, and real people on the pages. And uh, uh, as a result, when I'm going through a particular manuscript, they're, they're usually uh, kind of sitting right next to me and, and, uh, and talking me through it. So uh, as a result, they, they feel very different. So each new book is like uh, reconnecting with an old friend. It is in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like when I'm working on a book for one, I, I can kind of feel the others nudging me in the side and, and asking to get back on stage. It's my turn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Brian Freeman, the new book is Alter Ego. And, you know, we're hitting up to summer and beach season. If you need a reason to cool off, this is the book that'll do it. <laughs> exactly right. And that's a wrap. Next week, we highlight the top summer vacation destination. Want to take a guess where that is? I'll give you a hint. You're going to want to read up on bears before you go. While you're researching that, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880books and feel free to reach out to me at lisat at WCBS880.com. That's L-I-S-A-T at WCBS880.com.